Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming, and thank you to those watching remotely as well. I'm very happy to introduce Dr. Russell Hoverman. Russ, uh, welcome back. He went to Dartmouth College as an undergraduate with a degree in philosophy. He then earned his medical degree at Duke University and received training in hematology and oncology. He also received a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Texas in, um, in Austin with an interest in structures of moral sentiment. He's an active participant in value and quality initiatives through the American Cancer Society, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. Sorry? Oh, it was, okay. <laughs> um, the Cancer Quality Alliance and Hospice Austin. Within the U.S. Oncology Network, Dr. Hoverman has been instrumental in the development of the Pathways and InEvent programs and leads the Advanced Care Planning Initiative. He's Vice President of Texas Oncology, the largest independent oncology practice group in the country, and has been instrumental in moving their 350 physicians toward value-based payment for cancer care. He has a long-standing interest in improving communication between patients and physicians, especially for patients with terminal illness, and he's a strong supporter of hospice programs. Um, much of Dr. Horman's activity now involves development of delivery models for value-based oncology care with recent publications on pathways, palliative care, medical oncology management, and a joint interest of ours, the Choosing Wisely campaign. I'm also especially happy to introduce him as he's my uncle and I'm happy to have him up here for a visit. Um, he's been a meaningful mentor to me um, and an influence on my work. And uh, we've been lucky enough to do some work together since I came to Dartmouth as well. So very happy to have you here, Russ. Oh, finally, uh, Dr. Hoverman does not have any financial interests. He reports he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational use of product or devices. He attests that he is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Thanks. Well, thanks, it is. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, is that better? Yeah, the, the green still looks the same, which is comforting. Uh, it's a, I tend to get a little frenetic with these things, but. Yeah, there's two lights. Two left. Can you turn that one off? Where are my phone? Yeah, my phone is on, on the table there. No, that's awesome. Do you see the volume? Rick's on his way to give you a hand. Just Rick's on his way to give you a hand with the mic. Around. Are we? Coming from Common Services will be there in a minute. There he is. Okay. We're going to take that one right away from you. Okay. That one. Is this on already? Uh, not yet. like this commercial so that the most frightening aspects of giving a talk are whether your slides show up and the second one is whether the microphone works so what I, what I want to do is um, discuss our, my journey from being a philosophy major at Dartmouth to, to what we're doing now uh, and how they tend to fit sometimes and I had a very discussed interesting discussion this morning about what it's like to be a philosopher in a boardroom once you're once you think you're a philosopher you always think your opinion matters, but sometimes it's, uh, it's outvoted, uh, but it's an important position to be in. So where do I, oh, here we go. So no disclosures, we already talked about that. So I have, first of all, I express my, uh, my debt to the Dartmouth Atlas folks. Uh, when this first came out, we were uh, in Texas with the late 1990s, uh, full capitation, that means full risk for half a million patients uh, in commercial populations. So we were 
uh, responsible for all the cancer care that included chemotherapy and radiation uh, for this population. And of course, we had no idea what we're doing. Uh, we um, were faced with primitive uh, electronic medical records. All we had was uh, billing system, claims data, which is what, what uh, this generated as well. But it focused for us very much on the issue of variation. And of course, th these were some of the um, other data that, that the group came up with, with at least 100% fold difference in quality metrics uh, generally agreed upon um, among the best centers in the United States. So we, we talked to the folks up here and asked uh, if we could get some in data on Texas. And this is, um, again, the same metric, percent of Medicare decedents spending seven or more days in intensive care, well, this is intensive care during the last six months of life. And uh, we had a three to 400% difference in variation. But um, our numbers generally were lower than the top of the, uh, the academic hospitals or the best hospitals on the top and on the bottom. And, and Dr. Weinberg is uh, helpful to point out that Temple, Texas was one of the best, even though we had one of the worst in McAllen. We also had one of the best. And we had clinics in Waco, Austin, Abilene, Amarillo, Dallas, Tyler. So we had clinics in a number of these places that clearly showed um, variation. So we decided to do a study on our own. And we decided to take a look at the charges, or the, the charges, the expenses for lung cancer patients after the first day of chemotherapy, after commonly called C1D1, cycle one, day one, and look at those charges. So this was our, this was our variation internally. This was at that point on 75 physicians or so. This is on the commercial population, less than 65. And there is a greater than 100% difference in cost from the top quartile to the bottom quartile. And if we looked at where that came from, the chemo administration is directly related to um, the amount of chemo, but it was in drugs. So bottom quartile, top quartile, again, 100% uh, difference. So where can, we, where can we look to find out where that's coming from? The first thing we wanted to show was that um, there's no difference in survival in this group. Top quartile, bottom quartile, survival is exactly the same. Interesting thing, we also looked at hospice days, and the hospice days were exactly the same. But there were differences in lines of therapy. So here we are um, out here with the top quartile. This is third line therapy for lung cancer, about twice as much as second line therapy. And uh, the same is true for beyond that, in, for both Medicare and, um, and the commercial population. And then more, more chemotherapy loan across the board, more second line, more, more first line as well. Again, no difference in survival. So what we saw was that more cycles of chemotherapy, more late line chemotherapy, uh, we also saw a difference in white cell growth factors. White cell growth factors were a lot higher in the high utilization group. So the question then for us was, um, these capitated contracts dissolved. They became too complex. Or, to do this study took over a year. And to try to figure out what you're doing on a population of a couple of thousand patients a year uh, and multiple different diseases was simply impossible. So we got out of that, um, but we were still interested in, in value, and we're still interested in how, how do we reduce this kind of variation. So, using philosophy background, there is a need of a method of finding the truth. And you all know that Descartes' method was to sit with his feet up in a stove-heated room and just think. We didn't think that was going to work very much for us. Um, we all knew what was right, but it wasn't always the same thing. 
So we had to do we had to do something else. Uh, so begin to think about truth. So there's a priori, uh, which is a deductive proof. And an example is always a bachelor is an unmarried man. But but we have a priori truths in, in all likelihood that are built into the enterprise of what we do. So a physician is someone committed to relieving suffering. So is is the predicate deducible from the subject. When we think about what our enterprise is, what, there are many things, that, and, and if you look at some of the original quality metrics that, uh, that uh, um, people have come up with, a lot of them have to do with the enterprise. But that this still doesn't tell you what the best chemotherapy for a first-line lung cancer is. So we have to do a posteriori, which are inductive proofs. Now, it used to be, I mean, here's some examples. All ravens are black. That's actually not true. There, there are very occasional white ravens. Uh, all swans are white, which for the English philosophers was a truth. Every swan they ever saw was white. But then when Australia was discovered, this inductive truth went out the window because they had black swans. So the problem then is a book um, that has utilized this as the black swan effect. Completely unpredictable events, uh, unpredictable given the past history. But we still have to use induction to do testing, to come to any conclusions about what, we're, what the best thing is, what, what is the truth for now. So the other... Um, tool of philosophy is formal logic. So maybe the formal logic is helpful in this situation. So if we want to deal rationally with a complex problem, the first thing we do is define our goals clearly. So we start to define them by thinking in pretty rigorous terms exactly what we do. So if you think about if you had identical twins, and they both had lung cancer of the exact same kind. They were identical in every other way, and you did a therapy, the outcome would be related to that therapy. So that you can say, in this case, with a sense of high probability, that the difference in outcomes was related to your intervention. And this is essentially the structure of a clinical trial. So if you do a clinical trial, what you have is a population with these same characteristics plus a tumor. You compare it to another population with these same characteristics plus this tumor plus something else, plus a treatment. And you can come up now, um, these are complex situations. They're not simple. They're not identical twins. They're not clearly identical. They're as close to identical as we can make it given the biologic systems with which we work. And we end up with a probability relationship between the intervention and the outcome. And there are a couple of variations on this. So one is a placebo-controlled trial. Pretty much the same thing. But things happen when you give folks placebo, so you have to control for that. Another one is um, intervention versus the standard of care. And again, you still have a probability relationship. Now, it's important to think of what other kinds of data or inf what's called information or truth gets thrown at us. So one is the historical control. Um, I have some great examples for you. But the issues with historical controls, oops, excuse me, get to that in a second, is that they're not strictly identical groups. Um, there's a difference in time, number one, but the difference in enrollment characteristics may be very different. They may be different ages, they may have uh, different socioeconomic uh, um, characteristics. So from a strictly logical standpoint, you can't make the conclusion that C is related to those outcomes. And then, um, if you guys live in New Hampshire, I don't know how well, you know the rest of the world here, but 
So this is from Will Rogers. Uh, when the Okies left Oklahoma and moved to California, they raised the average intelligence in both states. <laughs> now think about that if you didn't get that the first time. Just think about it for a minute. Um, so what does that mean? So this is stage migration. Kind of the poster child for stage migration is the first um, high-dose chemotherapy for breast cancer uh, with bone marrow transplant, published from my other, one of my alma maters, from Duke. Um, this is the, the high-dose transplant arm. This is the chemotherapy alone arm. This was not a controlled trial. What they did was they compared partly historical, part, partly concurrent patients with the same, well, uh, with the same disease uh, and presumably the same stage and looked at survival. As you know, when controlled clinical trials have been done, there was no difference between those two arms. So what was the problem with this trial? The problem was that uh, these people uh, were all high um, socioeconomic status. They were all staged with CT scans of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis, and bone scans. There was no such uh, systematic uh, staging for these folks. So what happened was that pa patients with early metastatic disease were excluded from this group. Um, so just on the basis of that, this is a healthier group to start with. Uh, and this group had no such staging and on average had more tumor burden than this one did. So that's stage migration. So if the, the next example is if you do PET scans in lung cancer, you will detect early stage disease, early stage metastatic disease. So this is the growth of PET scans from 98 to 2003. Here is the growth of advanced disease. Now, with lung cancer, you get very happy with a few percentage points differences in, in outcomes. But here's advanced disease, less unstaged disease. So the thought is, this is where you're seeing stage migration up here. And if you look at um, the overall survival, it's virtually flat of the entire group. So it, when you're seeing trials now of, from 2005 and you're doing historical controls compared to 1998, for instance, you've, your trials for 2005 have selected a group with minimal metastatic disease now being treated as metastatic who would have been localized disease before. So the survival of the metastatic population is better because they have people with minimal metastatic disease. The survival of the localized group is better because you've eliminated folks with very early metastatic disease. So that's historical controls. How about meta-analysis? When you look at this, my other word for meta-analysis is, some people call it a meta-analysis, but I just call it a messy analysis. So what you do is you take back. You take multiple different studies. They all have different entry criteria, so they're not strictly comparable across groups. But then you make some sort of generalization from the total number, either by study or you do something called an individual patient analysis, and to come to some sort of conclusion. So again, this is filled with logical issues. This is the same stuff we do with large databases retrospective analysis, comparing com concurrent controls with large databases. It's something we have to do, but these are only as good as they approximate a randomized clinical trial. They're only as good as you get the two arms uh, to look relatively the same. And, but this is something we're going to have to deal with um, because we just can't do clinical trials on everybody. <coughs> Anecdotes? So, um, again, every patient is different when you're doing anecdotes. There's no control over it. We tend to have biases in terms of what we remember. 
So we tend to select, we unsystematically select who we remember and what's happened. So it's not really evidence, um, but it is experience. Now we have to remember that that experience is just an, an unsystematic collection of anecdotes. It has value, it's hypothesis generating, but we have to recognize that it may be a, an information gap, it may be a knowledge gap, and we have to be careful about how we use that. Comparative effectiveness looks very much like a clinical trial if done right. What often happens is that you do a clinical trial, your outcomes are survival, progression-free survival, something clinical, but at the same time we'll do cost. And so we compare these things in other ways. So with this as a framework, um, we have to think about how to be skeptical about what we read. Research has changed dramatically from the big cooperative groups to now almost all industry-sponsored studies. So gone from 4% to 57%. Um, the vast majority of the patients of the, the studies that are done by industry have positive outcomes, partly because those outcomes are selected sometimes after the fact. Positive phase two trials led to positive phase three trials only 50% of the time, almost a crapshoot. Maybe difficult to predict which positive phase two trial will lead to phase three. And again, industry-sponsored trials that were positive, almost 90%. Others, if you were truly in a situation of equipoise, you would expect 50-50. But if it's a drug-sponsored trial, it's going to have a positive effect in almost 90%. So, uh, especially, um, there are so many issues with drug trials, it makes me crazy, but um, one of them is that you're not, they're always biased towards a positive effect, and they're not always interested in uh, lowest cost or comparative effectiveness. Again, these are registered trials. Um, there's, there's discrepancies in about a third but that brings us to the values formula. So if you're thinking about chemotherapy regimens, it's fairly easy to get to clinical outcomes. It's fairly hard to get to value, true value. So value is uh, directly proportional to outcomes, inversely proportional to cost. There may be all kinds of costs. There's cost to the, for transportation, there's cost for toxicity, many different kinds of costs not all of which are evaluated, and certainly you don't see those in the headlines for the latest drug that comes out. But when we're talking to patients, we're talking about relative values. Again, if you have a patient who's a harpist, uh, you don't really want to give them Taxol or Oxaliplatin, because they'll lose touch in their fingertips. So uh, there may be another value. Even something simple as whether it's every week or every three weeks um, means that they may have to skip work, they have to find childcare, transportation is difficult, so that may, that may be another value. So when we talk about relative value, we're really talking about we have to collect subjective data. And the only person who can tell us that is the patient. So a true value to the patient cannot be determined unless we ask them about these subjective values. So where does that leave us? So this is now, we've jumped ahead six, seven years. We're 2004, 2005. And you go to a, a conference uh, on lung cancer. And these will be the regimens that folks give for first-line chemotherapy. Taxocarbo, Taxotercarbo, Gemzarcarbo would be the, the, the main ones. And there may be other ones. Um, so the, the, the intrinsic variability in what we do. But what if we decide to take cost into consideration? So you take those three regimens, one with docetaxel, uh, one with taxol, carbo, and one with gemcitabine. At that time, docetaxel and gemcitabine were single source, taxol was generic. Tenfold difference in cost. All things, uh, other things being equal, taxol carbo would be the one that provides you the most value. 
We still want to do clinical trials. We still want to do navel beam because um, pretty good studies show that that's as a single agent effective in older folks. But what if we say, well, to your practice, and this happened in Kansas City, you guys are going to do the, we want you to do the preferred regimen because it's the most value to your patients. And not only that, if you want to do something different, you have to talk to somebody. You have to go through an approval process. So this was the start of Pathways. Uh, this is the first data that they published. They didn't publish it, but they presented it to us. This, this is your data from 2006. And it's pretty compelling. So this is almost 90%. Um, this is number, I think, rather than percent. Uh, 90 patients versus 9 patients um, on pathways. Clinical, clinical trials were also considered pathways. So was navelbean. So this is 110 patients maybe with 10 off-pathways exceptions. You could do an exception. You just had to talk to somebody. So this reduced the variability considerably. The thing to note is that there was recognized second line, hardly any third line, or recognized, well, recognized second line, hardly any third line, hardly any fourth line. If you wanted to do third or fourth line chemotherapy and lung cancer for this group, you had to talk to somebody about it. You had to get it approved. There is not, was not and is not still good evidence that traditional chemotherapy adds any life ex, ex, expansion or uh, extension in third and fourth line chemotherapy and may be, may be toxic. So what do we do? Um, at 2004, 2005, we got electronic medical records. In 2005 and now 2006, we put the first person on pathways. We built the pathways into the electronic medical record so it became a decision support tool. So you put in the right information, and uh, including line of therapy, in some cases uh, biologic and genomic information. Uh, and then if you do all that, bingo, the, the pathways choices show up. You click on that, and you're done. You, get a, you make sure the doses are correct. You don't have to make any adjustments. Um, but um, if you don't want to do that, then you have to go through an exception process. So we looked at, retrospectively at the costs within our network, all pathways, any non-pathways, and found that there was a 35% difference, in 30, about 30, 35% difference in cost with the, all pathways being less expensive. So these are cumulative costs per month. Blue line is on pathways. The red is off pathways. This is the survival difference. Again, no difference in survival. Proving, proving again what you guys have learned at this institution for quite a while. Uh, and, and that there can be huge cost variations, um, but without much difference or any difference in survival. So we're ready to do that now. So the question is, what do we do next? We've since, uh, with the initial three diseases, we're doing 17 diseases. In, in our shop in Texas Oncology, we're about 75 to 80% on pathways, which is expected. The pathways were originally built to have about a 20% exception rate to be sure that we didn't ignore opportunities for patients to make, to have their voice heard so that we considered other options. So what do we do next? Uh, we started another program called Intervent Oncology, which, which was three things. The backbone was pathways. So we addressed the variable, the variable use of drugs uh, with pathways. Uh, we don't have pathways for diagnostics. We don't have pathways yet for radiation oncology, but we're, we're getting there. The second cost driver uh, was uh, hospitalizations from chemotherapy between visits. The third cost driver was advanced care planning ineffective interventions at the end of life. So we built two programs to do this. The second one is a nurse call system that would call right after 
chemotherapy, we, through our electronic medical records, we can determine the date. Sometimes we can talk to them before, but often right after chemotherapy to do symptomatic assess symptom assessments, systematic symptom assessment scale, and to introduce advanced care planning. We did this with, uh, with Aetna Commercial that we finished and published uh, results a little over a year ago. <coughs> Those results are, um, this is the characteristics, so this is the commercial population, looked at drug costs, ER, and inpatient admissions and costs, and had some other performance metrics. So the results were we reduced uh, ER visits by 48% overall for the program, which is a three-year program again. Admissions by 34%, hospital days by 44%. We improved pathways adherence on average uh, by year to 74% uh, from 63, and we're now pretty much up to 80%. Total savings at half a million dollars, which was about 10 to 12% total. So this brings us back to the a priori aspect of it. We learned that... Um, Advanced care planning, end of life, was the most difficult issue we have for physicians. We did not have a, surprisingly, we did not have a difficult time using education to move physicians to reducing variability in early line chemotherapy. The place we have difficulty is at the end of life. And this is the fundamental problem, one of the fundamental problems, but a fundamental problem of, uh, of, of uh, medicine in general and cancer care in particular. And then in the middle it says, and then I had to see people die, and then I saw that I could never get hardened to it. I was young then, and I was outraged by the whole scheme of things, or so I thought. Subsequently, I grew more modest. Only I've never managed to get used to seeing people die. That's all I know. It's from the plague. But, and this is where uh, understanding how we feel about all of this, I think, is crucial to getting us to the place where we can have these conversations with our patients. So this is from Horace. The human countenance borrows smiles or tears from the human countenance. We all know that. But we also now know that now biologically. We know that you cannot smile when a baby smiles at you, almost. You have to be pretty hard-hearted if you can't smile when a baby smiles at you. And that, what happens is that triggers something in your brain. It makes you smile. The smiling configuration probably has some sort of biologic effect on you. And so it, is, it happens centrally as well. So we have a direct sympathetic effect. And then he, David Hume knew this. In general, it's certain wherever we go, wherever we reflect on or converse about, everything still presents us with a view of human happiness or misery that excites in our breast a sympathetic, sympathetic response or uneasiness. So again, this is um, what happens when you sit down with patients. When, when your patients are miserable, you don't feel so good either. And that's what makes, if you've ever stood in front of a room with your chart, and you said, oh, PET scan is positive, and knew you had to go in and talk to your patients. I mean, that's not a great feeling. And this is, you have to recognize that that's, that's what's happening to you. Sympathy with persons remote from us are much fainter than that with persons near and contiguous. So the people you have the most exposure to, your family, um, you'll have the most sympathy. You'll have the most interaction. And there's something called the circle of sympathy. So the self is in the middle, family is around, and then larger circles of, 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 of sympathy. Interesting thing about the electronic revolution is that you can be sympathetic with a woman who was shot in Iran as you can with somebody that you know down the street almost. So it, 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 it allows us to enlarge our circles of sympathy. And then if, uh, so that's a direct contact. But it's also indirect. This, when you go to movies, you laugh or cry. So it's representational, but still it elicits sympathy from you. In this case, it's somebody like you. You know the situation. So you, by, by analogy almost, you can understand what's happening. 
And again, that can elicit sympathy. She was 27 years old, the mother of a 14-month-old son. She had failed all therapy for an aggressive lymphoma and was about to be discharged home. I stopped by her room early in the morning. I thought I'd seen it all by this time, but I realized that despite all the death and dying I'd seen through medical school, residency and fellowship, I was not prepared for this huge surge of emotion. She was younger than I was. Her son was younger than mine. So again, she knows the position. She, she can relate to this, this person on a huge uh, level. And the other part about being a physician, I, I also felt like a failure. Could we have done something more? Could I have had something more comforting? Was there someone I could talk to? So again, it's this, this uh, when our, one of our patients dies, we almost always do a retrospective review. What else could I have done? Did I do the right thing? Was it a good death? Was it, was it more than family could have otherwise expected? And, and uh, just for fun, Darwin was on to this. This is the expression of, from the expression of emotions in man and animals. So we, I don't, we don't have to tell you how these folks are feeling. You know how they feel. Again, this is, this is a, a, a legacy from, from Hume that we know what our patients are feeling. Part of the, part of the art of medicine is nonverbal communication. We know that they're uncomfortable. They're moving around a little bit. We know that they're not making eye contact. They're not looking you in the face. So th these are the, we have cues that are nonverbal that are part of this sympathetic response that we do. And this, this, this carries into marketing to no surprise. So th these, um, these are the bookends of my life when this picture was taken. So that's Grace, my first granddaughter, and that's Aunt Anne, who was, this is her 95th birthday. And we, so we all have these relationships. We all have these family relationships. So can you tell this is a drug? This is a, an advertisement for a chemotherapy drug? And um, because of the survival curve that is on, imprinted on his hand. And we see this all over the place. And so not only do you face it day to day, but you're facing it in marketing, and that there's meaningful relationships and you have something that you can do about it. E even though the cost may be exorbitant, uh, again, you don't see all sides of this. Uh, so one last point on this is the is empathy versus sympathy. This is from a book called The Empathy Exams, which I think is a great book. She is a, um, one of the actors. I don't know if you guys have actors up here or not. Um, but she's one of the actors. And she said one of the things she has to do is she has checklist item 31 is generally acknowledged as the most important, voiced empathy for my situation and problems. The students have to say the right word to get credit for compassion. <laughs> So my view of this is that empathy is, is kind of a calculated sympathy. You may not really have the same feelings that your patients have, but you have to respect that they have those feelings. And you have to voice empathy. You have to say that I respect those feelings. Tell me more about that. Not quite the same as sympathy, but we have to recognize both. We have to recognize that we have to voice empathy, but we are going to be emotionally involved with patients and how we deal with that. So one of the ways we've decided to do this is to move the conversation about end-of-life care upstream and not have it be dependent on physician activity. We've developed something called a values assessment that can be done right after diagnosis within the first month or two. It's often done by the uh, nurse practitioner. It's also introduced with a chemo teaching episode but it can also be done telephonically. We have found that we can do it, uh, and I'll talk about that in a minute, with um, the patient support services nurse in the InnoVent program. We ask about advanced care planning on the first call, introduce the values assessment within a month or two, and if we can, take it all the way to uh, filling out documents.
So this starts out with how valuable is it to me to, for instance, have freedom from pain even if it takes strong medicines, which could impair my ability to think, to move about freely, to sleep well, to know that I am not a burden to my family, friends, or helpers. There's also one about sexuality, which um, this turned out to be a very important question. If you don't ask it, you don't know. And this is what it looks like. Here's some of the results. So choose who will make medical decisions for, for patients if, for the patient if uh, the patient is unable to make those decisions. And this one, to be told by my physician when I'm dying. We've done this now on a thousand, about a thousand patients. We've done it also on about 150 medical personnel. And they look remarkably the same. So we can say to our physicians that your patients want what you want. So what do you want? And we can also use this now. If we give that upstream, we can bring it out later on. So we've had a number of cases now where either patients wanted to redo it. You know, you know, remember that questionnaire with the bubbles in it? Let me do it again. Let's see, see, what, see what that does. Or another friend of mine, a patient, in our, a physician in our group said, for an 85-year-old gentleman, very vigorous, very healthy, was in his last legs on uh, metastatic colon cancer. And they were about to decide on a third regimen. Pulls out the questionnaire and says, well, this is what you talked about six months ago. Is this, is this what you want? And he says, you're right. More chemotherapy is not for me. Let's think about doing hospice. So this is a bridge. It's not a, it's not a directive. It's a bridge. And we're, so far, we're pretty pleased with the way things have gone. Again, this is our experience with um, our current program with Aetna. Introduce it in about 90%. This was a good quarter. We're at about 50% right now. But go all the way through to ACP counseling telephonically in 50% or so. So we never thought about doing this before. But what, it, what it's telling us is that we can reduce variation, we can still meet patient needs, but we have to have team-based care to identify patients that we really need, that really need attention. We have just found in the last three or four years that we have hospital data. We've never had hospital data mixed with the robust activity, the robust information that we have with our electronic medical records, and we're now seeing it in older people. So we know now that if you have lung cancer and you get combined chemoradiation therapy, you have about a 75% chance of at least being admitted to the hospital once. So it changes our discussion about what the risks and benefits are. And presumably, with enough information, uh, we will be able to make some more informed choices about what to help, um, how to help our patients. Again, we've talked about that. I had some great conversations this morning here about, about what that means. The um, Medicare, through their uh, new program, the oncology care model uh, with Aetna, we're becoming responsible with United Healthcare. We've just entered a contract with United Healthcare for their episodes of care. We're responsible for the total cost of care. Drugs are a big part of that, and we think we've addressed that to some degree with pathways. But hospitalization, imaging, radiation, these are other places that we've not gone yet where we feel we can make a big difference. If we can reduce hospitalizations in, in the Medicare population by 30%, uh, we'll have done a lot for our patients. So that's where we feel like we have to head. Uh, we are looking at ways to use our data combined with hospital data so that we can accurately assess risk, but we also feel we have to put that risk into the discussion we have with our patients about advanced care planning, about whether they're going to benefit. I can give you, give you a couple cases. So one is a 80-plus-year-old uh, woman, metastatic colon cancer, who um, fails two lines of chemotherapy, gets a foundation health genetic profile, is BRAF positive, um, 
gets put on a drug for BRF, the melanoma drug, gets it funded by the drug company. She has a terrible time. Turns out BRAP is not an actionable mutation for colon cancer. It's not the same as melanoma. Another one, similar age, 80-year-old gentleman, second-line lung cancer, getting docetaxel. Um, you can tell by the notes that he's, he's losing weight, he's losing his appetite, he's fatigued. Comes in, he's already had two cycles. The question is, do you want to have a third? And he gets asked, well, should we go ahead and chemotherapy? And he says, uh, I don't want to give up. He gets third-line chemotherapy, get a, gets another cycle of chemotherapy, ends up in the hospital, ends up in hospice. And what that did to that patient is that it took away some of his autonomy. So I think it's, we have to be very careful about knowing exactly what we're doing with these things. Okay, so evidence counts a lot. There's not enough of it. Comparative effectiveness will help, and we will need large integrated databases. We need to think about value. If we're going to help our patients, um, we need to understand their needs. Variation at the end of life is profound, and it requires, again, conversations with our patients. And cancer care is fraught with emotional content, and it is a good reason for team-based care. We need to understand it. We need to confront it, but we need to have help. We can't do it as physicians by ourselves. We need to have uh, lots of support uh, to be able to do that. And that's it. I'm done. Thanks. So, so time for questions, comments. No criticisms, just questions and comments. Yes. These are standalone outpatient clinics that make up Texas Oncology. Right. So let me just. Um, so Texas Oncology is. Um, 350 physicians in Texas. We have 35 standalone cancer centers, all community-based. Some of them we have joint ventures, um, only very few. We have some joint ventures with hospitals. So it's all standalone cancer centers. If it's a cancer center, it has medical oncology and radiation, labs, and some imaging as a minimum. We have also have gynecologic oncologists in this practice. Um, we have beginning to add some surgeons. We have some urologists and some general surgeons and uh, breast surgeons, trying to, trying to build more of a spectrum uh, for us to take responsibility for. Are academic medical centers and NCI comprehensive cancer care centers taking this path towards sort of this common starting point and trajectory through known cancer entities? I was just at the NCCN meetings. Um, after 20 years, they, uh, well, let me back up a minute. To 19 years. Their first meeting was in 1996. They began to work with us in collaboration so that, so that we have um, NCCN members on our disease-specific panels. So yes, they are. And for the first time, they will have uh, what's called an evidence box, I think it's called, which will have some um, discussion about cost uh, with their regimens. So yes, but whether they'll do it in, in practice or not, um, it remains to be seen. Uh, nobody um, really looks at data like, like we do in terms of pathways performance. The issue is that pathways have, have in a way, become the language of cancer delivery because you have to do pre-authorization. When you're doing pre-authorization, in some ways you're doing pathways because you, you may have limited choice. Anthem Healthcare, for many re regimens, gives you one choice. Uh, the payers are doing it for us. Yes. Whether we want to go there or not. Yeah. So the are taking this on sort of one disease state at a time. Correct. So you slowly adopt, it sounds like, or more formally adopt. The well, to, to, to collaborate with us, they can, again, the institutions are, are free to do what they want. There are a number of institutions that are, that are trying to do that. Moffitt's trying to do that. Um, MD Anderson, uh, interestingly, has taken it probably a step further and has taken a bundle for head and neck cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, they went through an enormous quality improvement Six Sigma process to measure everything. And if you think about it, cardiologists have done this long ago for cardiac surgery. So St. Luke's in Houston being one of the first, that it's essentially a checklist. Uh, they, United is contracted with them because United knows what the average price is nationwide, and MD Anderson came in under that. 
So it, the question is, uh, how will academic medical centers deal with this, whether they can do the same kind of activity? You look at what the sweet spot is for academic medical centers, it's in multidisciplinary care, probably um, around surgery. And if, if they go to that same process and we don't, um, then there's, there's an opportunity for them. But we'll do the same thing. Why are you searching? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and um, you know, a patient from Midland probably deserves as good care as they could get in Houston. Um, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be, a, they shouldn't be a victim of geography, to our thinking. Uh, so we would like to be able to export those, that everywhere. And if, if MD Anderson shares that at some point, or academics, in fact, NCCN themselves might do the same thing. The checklist may be the next step. But again, for the first time they've done costs. The other thing they've done is there's a lot of requests from the third world as to what would, what would be your minimum. So they'll probably have a third world, second world, first world pathways, I mean uh, guidelines, and we'll start seeing costs being taken into consideration there too. Anything else? Yes, Carrie. What was the process like to get the physicians on board using the pathway? What kind of educational tools did you use? Or it, 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 um, it, I'm in my maybe my third iteration of the roadshow. <laughs> it, it meant going to every practice, every center, and going over the pathways, going over the rationale, going over the incentives. That again, this was a lot of this was pie in the sky to start with. I mean, the, the thought was that, well, if you, could, if you guys do the right thing, someday somebody will reward you for it. We're not sure we've seen that day yet. If you think about it, if you do pathways, you, you, you potentially lose income. You do lower cost, lower margin drugs. Um, you move 20% of your practice into pathways. You might potentially lose income. But we did that. What it's done is it's placed us in a marketplace where we can compete. Uh, so again, and that's happening with uh, the Innovent program as well. We are, we are placed in the marketplace to um, be a reasonable choice for the government, for their oncology care model. Aetna is working with us, United is working with us. So again, it's, uh, physicians are supposed to be great at delayed gratification. When they get into practice, they don't seem to be that great at delayed gratification. So this was a little bit of a, of a a leap for us to do that. But it, it was almost one-on-one -on -one education for about a year to do pathways, and we're now doing the same thing with total cost of care, um, understanding these new contracts where we're responsible for hospitalization. That and emails and you know email blasts. And I also periodically do a col column for our group called the Prudent Oncologist. So there are a number of ways to, to go about doing this. But again, the the, um, the climate's changed dramatically, uh, and the technology has changed dramatically, so that we more and more are getting closer and closer to knowing exactly what we're doing in a, in a bigger sphere than we've ever known before. So um, I think it, it, might, it might be fun to do this over the next couple of years. Yeah. In my experience, sometimes the most difficult conversations about limiting care or deciding against frontline chemotherapy. Right. Most emotionally laden and best delivered with a trusted emotional relationship between physician and patient. At the same time, a lot of us are moving towards telemedicine. Uh -huh. Do you have experience or thoughts about how that's going to come out? Well, if we can do some of this telephonically, um, I, 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 I don't... Uh, I think there's a, a role for telemedicine, uh, but part of it is also integrating your care with the local practitioners at the site. Uh, we, we think that the My Choices, My Wishes is something that will work best along with primary care physicians. So again, I would strongly recommend that if you're doing telemedicine that there also be a very strong relationship with the folks at the site. And they may welcome that, because that's a very difficult conversation for them, too. Um, but again, if false hopes are not satisfactory. 
they lead to unsatisfactory outcomes. And, I, and we have to recognize that, not only for family and the patient, but also cost-wise and financial-wise. So um, it's important for us to be pretty open about this. And again, it's very hard. You, I mean, you like your patients. It's, it's hard to give bad news. Obviously, a key part of, of this uh, would be metrics related to metrics, outcome metrics and cost metrics. How difficult that, has that been for you within your system? And it sounds like you're, you're working not only with, with an entity that's right within your control, but also with other entities within your system. How hard is that? Very hard. You know what the hardest thing is? Finding out when patients died. Um, they may go someplace else. They might go to Pennsylvania. They go where their daughters are. Um, so how do we know? And we, Carrie and I did a paper on chemotherapy in the last two weeks of life. You can do that with Medicare data, but how do you get that information down on an individual physician basis? And we have to be able to do that within our electronic medical record. Pathways covers 25 copy metrics, if you know what copy is. You're giving Herceptin at the right time. You're giving hormones at the right time. You're giving chemotherapy at the right time. You have a treatment plan. Um, so it covers a number of quality metrics. The tough ones are uh, the end-of-life ones. D did you accurately define prognosis as curative or palliative? Uh, did you have that conversation? So we have to look at other ways to do that. We're trying to build those into our electronic medical records. The criteria has always been that you have to get it down to a physician level. Copy never got us to a physician level. So it's a big challenge. We, We've um, collectively decided, I think on 12 or 13 metrics, that we will put our weight behind that includes some of these end-of-life metrics and, and the communication metrics. And we'll try to get those so that they can be searchable items in the electronic medical record. And, and uh, the follow-up to that, so those metrics that you identified, um, are they of value to the physician and also the payers? So have they been able to kind of agree on Right. Well, some of those metrics we'll get from payers, so those outside, and that would be the hospitalizations. We know that if we have some of these conversations, for instance, and we know path with, for instance, we know that if we do pathways, 80% of the time, we'll reduce their cost 15% of the time, or some some number. We know that if we do good uh, end of life care and have good hospice numbers, we'll reduce their end of life costs. So yes, they're they're directly related. They're quality metrics. They're also financial metrics. Um, but we will also get hospital data from them, and they will uh, help us measure that. Thanks. Sure. Yes? Two questions. The first is that the, seems, the pathways seem to be in complete disagreement with respect to how things are shifting with personalized medicine. And you get the example of the colon cancer with BRAF, that certainly, for example, the brain tumors with BRAF mutation that respond to that medication. Mm -hmm. Yep. Two weeks ago, we had somebody here who talked about the basket trials in which basically the treatments are going to be geared towards personalized the tumor, and not only the tumor, but the patient also. And heavy account values of the patients also. We need to create pathways that are going to apply to all situations for everybody. I think it's going to be very difficult. For example, here for brain tumor, we do a 15-year panel in which we check for mm -hmm. 15 years. So, it seems that it's not going to, to be for everybody in this. And the second is the thing that there is also bias, like you saw bias with respect to the pharmaceutical companies, that their trials were positive in these studies with comparative effectiveness. You are sort of a priori providing what you think is going to be the result of those studies with respect that they seem to be sure there is less cost. But that's something that seems to be very uh, a priori that you had that, that concept. First of all, uh, if there's something that clearly defines a population in colon cancer, for instance, um, we'll put it in pathways. So EGFR tests, KRAS tests, um, even um, some of the other ones for early stage disease, no problems with that. Perceptin, um, these are all specific markers. At some point, we will get to defining actionable versus non-actionable mutations. The issue that we have to remember is that any specific mutation 
occurs in an environment of maybe 10 other mutations, and we have to do clinical trials. The clinical trials may be a lot smaller. We don't have to do 1,000 patients to show a 2% difference. But we'll still have to do clinical trials to prove that because of the company that these um, mutations exist, where they exist. So it won't get rid of clinical trials. If the data are sound, they'll go into pathways. We may have 10 different drugs for colon cancer. I mean, we, we do ALK testing. You know, we, all, of, all of these things that we know about and have been proven will fall into pathways. So personalized medicine is fine. Um, there was an article um, from Duke about personalized medicine that really only talked about finding out what the patient wants. So we're talking about two different kinds of personalized medicine. Genomic medicine may be a better way to think about it. Um, but we'll do that. Uh, the other question was about drug companies. We have to recognize clinical trials. We don't always have to put things on pathways. So, for instance, the new drug, um, nivolumab, Optivo. Uh, another one is Idilisip, um or Abrutinib. Uh, Abrutinib costs $110,000 a year. You have to take it for a couple of years. But it's a good drug. It's a phenomenal drug. So it goes on pathways, but we have to have that discussion with the patients. Uh, the nivolumab, which is the new drug for second-line squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, adds maybe eight weeks, 10 weeks, and costs $10,000 or $12,000 a month. So sometimes we won't put those on pathways. We'll approve them. But what we want to be sure happens is that the physician and patients have that discussion about costs. So again, this, we're, we're in, this, in this world where we have great possibilities, but we also have great costs. And not the, the two may be mutually exclusive. We just have to see. I think we don't know that yet. But we have to recognize that. And so, yeah, we're on board with that. Okay, anything else? Okay.